Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel, serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. The name Gerardus Mercator has come up on the show a few times he is most well-known for making a map projection that for a while just seemed to be ubiquitous in classrooms in some parts of the world. So if you're a little younger than Holly and I are, or maybe if you grew up somewhere else, this might not have been your experience, but a whole, whole lot of us learned what the world looked like from a pull-down map mounted over the chalkboard that made Greenland look as big as Africa, which it definitely is not. Uh, Even though this map projection is way less common in classrooms today, there's a digital version of it called Web Mercator, and that's become kind of the de facto standard for online maps. It's what Google Maps uses, although in 2018, Google also introduced a globe mode, which uses a different projection if you zoom all the way out. So the Mercator projection gets a lot of grief about how much it distorts the relative sizes of different land masses. If you're about to fire off an angry email about us bad-mouthing the Mercator projection, just hang on. Uh, Map projections translate a roughly spherical planet to a two-dimensional image, so all of them are distorted in some way. You have to distort something to make that translation work. 
And the Mercator projection was actually pretty good at what it was designed to do, which was to help people navigate long distances at sea. So that is what we're going to talk about for today's episode. And just to level set, this is really about European traditions of map making and navigation. So we're going to talk about navigation and maps, but we won't be talking about things like indigenous styles of map making or Polynesian wayfinding, things like that in this episode. They're a little outside the scope. So we will start with some of the highlights from the worlds of cartography and navigation that led up to Mercator making his projection. Around the world, people probably started making maps before developing written languages meant to represent words. And in general, cultures that did not develop their own written language did still develop ways of making and sharing maps. But we don't have surviving examples of those very earliest maps. The oldest ones that we do have are comparatively more recent. Yeah, in one of last year's Unearthed episodes, we talked about the Sanbelek Slab, which dates back to between 1900 and 1650 BCE. And that may be the oldest known map of Europe. The Imago Mundi, also called the Babylonian map of the world, dates back to about 600 BCE. And that's the oldest known world map, or at least as much of the world as was known to the people who made it. It was at around this same time that people started figuring out how to make map projections. Again, ways to represent a roughly spherical Earth as a flat image. Greek mathematician Thales of Miletus, who lived in the 7th century BCE, is often credited with making the first map projection, although he was making star maps rather than a map of the Earth. This may have been shortly before people started to figure out that the Earth itself was spherical, but that's been known since about 500 BCE. In about 240 BCE, Eratosthenes of Cyrene calculated the planet's circumference at about 25,000 stadia. We don't have exact documentation of the process he used to do this, but according to Greek geographer Strabo, who lived about 200 years later, this involved comparing shadows that were cast at noon on the summer solstice. So... In Syene, there was no shadow. That meant the sun was shining straight down. But in Alexandria, a pole in its shadow formed an angle of about 7.2 degrees or about 1 50th of a circle. So they had professional surveyors measure the distance between Syene and Alexandria. That was 5,000 stadia. So 5,000 times 50 is 250,000. Uh, today, Syene is Aswan, Egypt. Around the 2nd century BCE, Greek astronomer Hipparchus started using latitude and longitude to describe the locations of places on the globe. About 400 years after that, Greek mathematician and geographer Ptolemy published his treatise known as The Geography, which documented and established many of the basic principles of cartography used in the Western tradition of map making, including various map projections. Magnetic compasses were first developed in China all the way back in about 200 BCE, but their first uses for navigational purposes seem to have come along a lot later. The first written reference to navigational compasses in China dates back to about the year 1040, and in Europe they were in use by about the end of the 12th century. By about the 13th century, navigators in the Mediterranean were using Portolan charts to plot their courses. These charts were usually made on vellum to be more durable. 
And they typically showed coastlines and islands labeled with the names of ports and towns. And the standard was for the names to be written on the land as much as possible, not on the water, so that the labeling didn't get in the way of navigational information. That navigational information was shown through compass roses. These were marked with wind directions, both the principal directions like north and southwest, and the half winds like east, northeast, and south-southwest. It was shown through straight lines. Also, many of these lines radiating out like the spokes of a wheel, and these represented compass bearings. These straight lines are called rum lines or loxodromes. If someone were sailing between two ports connected by a rum line on one of these charts, they could set their bearing according to the angle of that line. Depending on where they were going, they also might start along one bearing and then change angles along the way. Or they might use a straight edge to plot out a course between two points with the angle of the straight edge providing the compass bearing. So there's a little bit of guesswork here, because while some of these charts have survived until today, there aren't really very many of them, and there are no surviving instructions about how to use them. Even the name Portland Chart seems to have been coined centuries after the charts themselves mostly fell out of use. The charts most likely to have survived until today are also library or display copies, not ones that were actually taken to see. Even if, it, even if it's made of, made of vellum to be more durable, if you take a chart out onto the ocean, it's going to be damaged by use and exposure to the elements. We don't really know who made the first one of these or where, and we don't have early enough versions of them to kind of suggest how they might have evolved as people improved on them. Portland charts were mostly used in Europe from about 1300 to 1500. As far as we know, they worked pretty well for navigating around bodies of water like the Mediterranean Sea or the Black Sea or the Atlantic coast of Europe. As European navigators started voyaging farther away in the 16th century, Portland charts were expanded to include the information they brought back about the coasts of Africa, Asia, and the Americas. World maps were also evolving significantly during the same period. Ptolemy's geography was translated into Latin for the first time in the early 15th century. It had already been translated into Arabic centuries before that, but once it was available in Latin, it once again became influential in European mapmaking. For a while, these Portland nautical charts and maps of the world or particular regions of the world evolved alongside one another, and they kind of, to some extent, borrowed from each other, Although sometimes cartographers who were focused on the geography of the Earth ignored information on charts that had been made by navigators that kind of viewed these navigational charts as inferior, even though often these charts were more precise and accurate than the maps that they were working from. Of course, that is the work of learned men. You're just dudes <laughs> right. who are actually doing the things. Not tradespeople. <laughs> As more Europeans crossed the Atlantic and returned to Europe, cartographers started adding what they found to their maps. In 1507, Martin Waldseemuller printed a world map using a set of 12 woodblocks. Working with scholar Matthias Ringmann, he pulled in geographic information from multiple sources, including Ptolemy and Marco Polo, and information from nautical charts detailing the southern coasts of Africa. He also drew from European explorers' accounts of what lay on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. 
In particular, Waldseemuller and Ringman referenced the work of Italian navigator Amerigo Vespucci, whose voyages took place between 1497 and 1504. There are some question marks around Vespucci's voyages, including some doubts about the authenticity of some of the letters that are attributed to him and describe the voyages. But this map showed a landmass on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, a landmass that was separate from Asia. Of course, Vespucci had no concept of how far to the west this landmass stretched because his voyages had mostly stuck to the continent's eastern coast. But Waldseemuller called this landmass America after him. Waldseemuller's map was focused on geography, not navigation. He used a variation on one of Ptolemy's projections called Clamus or Cloak. On this projection, the lines of latitude and longitude are curved, making the globe into kind of a drapey, rounded-off rectangle. Waldseemuller's map showed landmasses, including the Americas, as two narrow continents connected by an isthmus. It also showed some geographic features, like rivers and mountains and lots of place names. But it didn't have the navigational elements of compass roses or rum lines. Gerardus Mercator's most famous projection, on the other hand, combined both navigational and geographic elements, and we will talk more about that after a quick sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. (laughs) 
If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Gerardus Mercator was born on March 15, 1512, in Rupelmonde, Flanders, which is now in Belgium. His parents were Hubert and Emerentiana Kramer. They named him Gerhard Kramer, and then he Latinized his name during his education. So that morph from Gerhard to Gerardus, like, that's pretty straightforward. The name Kramer meant merchant, and that's Mercator in Latin. Probably none of this was pronounced the way we do it today. Hubert was a cobbler, and the family really did not have much money, so Gerhard's uncle, Giesbert, helped arrange for his education. Gerhard started out at a school that trained boys from less well-off backgrounds for the priesthood, so his early education was focused on things like theology and Latin. In 1530, he enrolled at the University of Louvain, also called the Old University of Leuven, under the name Gerardus Mercator Rumpelmandanus. He studied philosophy and the humanities, and he graduated with a master's degree in 1532. Mercator also spent some time trying to reconcile his religious education with his education in science, particularly conflicts between the biblical account of creation and the work of Aristotle. For about two years, he studied and he corresponded with religious scholars in Mechelen and Antwerp, both of which were in the Flemish region of what's now Belgium. In 1534, Mercator married Barbara Skellikens, and they eventually had six children together. Not long after getting married, Mercator started working with mathematician, cartographer, and instrument maker Gemma Frisius. 
Mercator had studied with Frisius at the university, and the two men teamed up with goldsmith Gaspar van der Hayden, also known as Gaspar America, to make scientific instruments and globes. And together, they made a globe of the Earth in 1536 and a celestial globe in 1537. Mercator was also making maps of his own, In 1537, he made a map of what's now Egypt, Israel, and Palestine, and that was printed across six sheets. This is a pretty big map. There's some speculation that he chose this region for one of his first solo map projects because of his interest in Christianity. A year later, Mercator finished his first world map. This map was a double cordiform projection, shaped roughly like two hearts lying on their sides with their points touching in the center of the map. The northern hemisphere is on one heart, and the southern hemisphere is on the other. Like Waldseemuller, Mercator used the name America, in this case spelled with an E on the end. As he was working on these maps, Mercator was also working as an instrument maker and an engraver, and he was becoming really well-respected in all of these fields. In 1540, he published his first book, which was a treatise on the italic lettering that he was using for his maps, The title of this treatise translated as The Idea of Writing Latin Letters, which they call italic or cursive. He also carved the wood blocks that were used to illustrate the letters in this text. Mercator thought that italic type was a lot more legible than other styles of lettering, and he advocated for its use in map making to try to make the maps more readable. In 1540, at the request of Flemish mapmakers, Mercator also made a map of Flanders, and in 1541, he started focusing on making globes. This was something that required a huge amount of skill. The globe maker had to create a set of flat gores that would all line up correctly once they were mounted onto a sphere. In 1541, Mercator made a navigator's globe using 12 gores with caps for the North and South Poles. This was marked with lines of longitude and latitude and with rum lines that were connecting different points and fanning out from compass roses. This was the first known time that someone included rum lines on a globe. And a note on that. As we said earlier, on a flat map, a rum line is a straight line connecting two points. But that's not the shortest path between the two points. That would be the great circle path. Imagine connecting two points on a globe with string and pulling that string as tight as possible. And if you extend the ends of the string until they encircle the whole world, creating a circle whose center is at the center of the Earth, that is a great circle. The lines of longitude on a globe are all great circles, as is the equator, but the rest of the lines of latitude are not, since the center of the circle they make isn't also the center of the Earth. A navigator following a rum line from a flat map sets a compass bearing and follows it. But following a great circle path requires continually shifting directions to move in a curve. And while rum lines are straight lines on a flat map, if you draw them on a globe, they eventually form into spirals if they get long enough, with the spiral getting smaller the closer it gets to the poles. So, Setting a compass bearing once to travel along a rum line from a map, that's probably the easier way because you set your heading one time and then you follow it. But it would not be shorter, especially over very long distances. Portuguese scholar Pedro Nunes articulated the difference between rum lines and great circles in a treatise he wrote, including Treatise on Certain Doubts of Navigation in 1537. 
So back to Mercator. He was doing this work as the Counter-Reformation was starting to develop in parts of Europe. This was a Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation, with the Roman Inquisition established in 1542 in an effort to combat what the Catholic Church saw as heresy. In 1544, 43 residents of Louvain were arrested for heresy, and one of those people was Gerardus Mercator. When Mercator was arrested, he was actually back in Rupelmonde. His uncle Giesbert had died, and Mercator had gone back to settle his affairs. But authorities framed this trip as a flight from justice, and they were also really suspicious of that earlier correspondence he'd had with religious scholars. Mercator was arrested and imprisoned for seven months as his wife and their parish curate and various other people tried to get him freed. Four of the people who were arrested at the same time as Mercator was were all executed. It is not clear why Mercator was ultimately released, and it's also not entirely clear what his religious convictions actually were. Different historians have come to vastly different conclusions based on the information that's available. He lived in a predominantly Protestant area, but after all this, he still had Catholic patrons, and Catholics still bought and used his maps. In about 1552, Mercator moved to Duisburg, where he lectured at the University of Duisburg and helped establish a school. He taught math and helped create the mathematics curriculum there. He became friends with John Dee, who later became an advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. Mercator also made more maps, including new maps of various parts of Europe and maps that were based on the earlier work of Ptolemy. He was not doing all of this map-making work by himself. He had a whole staff of cartographers and mathematicians, and for maps that were in color, there were also colorists who were typically women. In 1554, Mercator made a map of Britain that has raised some questions. It wasn't as accurate or up-to-date as some other maps of the area that were already in use at the time, and it didn't note several bishoprics that Henry VIII had established after breaking with Rome and establishing himself as head of the Church of England two decades prior. It is not clear whether this is just because Mercator was working with older sources for some reason, or if he thought including those bishoprics would offend his more staunchly Catholic patrons. Mercator created another map of England, Scotland, and Ireland about a decade later, and that was far more complete. By the 1560s, regardless of all that, Mercator was a highly respected map maker and an instrument maker and an engraver. And in 1564, he was appointed court cosmographer to Duke Wilhelm of Cleve. A few years after that, he made his most famous map projection, and we'll get to that after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. 
And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human, but if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1569, Gerardus Mercator published a map of the world that was intended to be used for sea navigation. He titled this, New and Augmented Description of the Earth Corrected for Use in Navigation. He described what he had done as squaring the circle. 
This was a big map, printed over 18 sheets and in total measuring 202 by 124 centimeters or 79 by almost 50 inches. Only three original copies of this map remain today, at least that we know of. There was a fourth one still in existence at the start of the 20th century, but it was destroyed during World War II. Mercator had created a cylindrical projection of the Earth. All the lines of longitude were parallel, and they intersected at 90-degree angles with all the lines of latitude. On a globe, the lines of longitude converge as they approach the north and south poles, so Mercator had to stretch everything out to make the lines straight and parallel instead. The farther something was from the equator, the more he had to stretch it out. And as part of this stretch, the lines of latitude are progressively farther apart the farther they are from the poles. Mercator didn't explain exactly how he did this. It was not as simple as just drawing a bunch of lines on paper with a straight edge and then filling in the map details. There was a lot of math involved in creating the lines of latitude and longitude and spacing them out correctly and in adjusting the sizes and the shapes of all the land masses. But the math that Mercator had access to wasn't as advanced as the math that exists today. For example, calculus would not be invented for more than 100 more years. There is still speculation today about exactly what mathematical and cartographic steps Mercator took to make this projection. He may not have been the first person to create a projection like this, though. German astronomer, instrument maker, and cartographer Erhard Etzlaub made a map known as the Compass Map in 1511, with another version in 1513. One of these maps has survived on the lid of a portable sundial, and it has similar spacing noted for the lines of latitude. But this map is also quite small, so it's hard to tell the details. It's not clear whether Mercator knew about this map or whether it may have inspired him to try something similar. Regardless, as we said, on Mercator's projection, the lines of longitude and latitude intersected one another at right angles. This map was covered in rum lines that radiated out from central points, and if you put a straight edge down on the map, you could draw a line between any two points, and that would cross the meridians at the same angle from end to end. You could measure that angle, and that was your compass bearing for your journey. This was not a completely perfect system. Ships don't travel in straight lines, especially when they're powered by sail. There are variations in wind and current and other factors involved. Mariners in Europe had been using astrolabes to figure out their latitude since about the middle of the 15th century, but they didn't yet have a good way to measure their longitude. That continued to be an issue until the 18th century. Yeah, we have an episode on that in the archive. Uh, the Earth's magnetic field also isn't quite as orderly and uniform as it was believed to be at the time. People knew that the geographic and the magnetic North Poles were not in the exact same spot, but the details of that weren't fully understood. People in China had measured the difference between the magnetic and geographic North Pole for the first time all the way back in about the year 720, but Europeans didn't make note of it until roughly 700 more years after that. The first precise measurement of magnetic declination, which is the difference in those two things, the first 
A precise measurement of that in Europe took place in 1510. And when Mercator made this map almost 60 years later, there were still lots of questions about how that angle varied around the globe. And while the Americas were somewhat expanded from the way they were shown in the Waldseemuller map, on Mercator's 1569 map, they still were not nearly as accurate or detailed as Europe, Asia, and Africa were. This map showed things like rivers, mountains, and towns, but far fewer of those are noted in the Americas. Europeans had not set foot on Australia at all, so that continent, marked as Nova Guinea, is a featureless blob. Yeah, it's just like a spot there on the map. Roughly the same shape, but not exactly. It's (laughs) Australia-ish. Yeah. Uh, The western coast of the Americas is also, like, not... It's not shaped exactly right. I mean, there's there was a lot that was still a work in progress, but still, this is a huge advance for European navigators. It was a flat map intended for navigation at sea, showing as much of the world as Europeans knew about, and it would allow a sailor to plot out a course by drawing a line with a straight edge. As is often the case, though, it took a while for it to really catch on. In the meantime, Mercator kept working on other projects, including working on a collection of maps that he planned to call an atlas, taking the name from the titan from Greek mythology who holds up the heavens. This was the first use of atlas to mean a collection of maps. In 1569, he also published a chronology of the world from the creation to, at the time, the present. He planned to include this chronology as the first part of his atlas. This chronology included things like astronomical events, so stuff like eclipses. There were also historical events and moments from the Bible. This chronology wound up being banned in some places because it included a number of events that were related to the Protestant Reformation. In 1578, he published another work that would eventually be part of the Atlas. That was a collection of 27 of Ptolemy's maps with corrections and commentary. Then, in the 1580s, he published two collections of maps, both titled Atlas or Cosmographic Meditations on the Fabric of the World and the Figure of the Fabric. One of these came out in 1585, the other came out in 1589. Mercator's plan and his goal for all of this was to include maps of all of Europe in his atlas. But before he was able to finish that, he died on December 2nd, 1594. He'd had a series of strokes starting in 1590 and had become partially paralyzed, and his work on this had slowed down as a result of all of that. His son, Rumold, finished as much as he could and published the final edition of Mercator's atlas in 1595. It included the 74 maps that had been part of Mercator's earlier two editions, along with 28 more. Some of these maps were based on Ptolemy's work, and some were Mercator's own. In the end, Spain and Portugal were mostly left out of the atlas because Mercator had not been able to make those maps yet. Eventually, Mercator's sons sold the plates that were used to print the atlas to engraver and publisher Iodocus Hondius, Hondius added more maps and published another version in 1606 that became known as the Mercator Hondius Atlas. 30 different editions of the Mercator Hondius Atlas were published in various languages between 1606 and 1641. Although Hondius had bought the plates outright and could just do whatever he wanted to with them, he kept Mercator's name on the atlas in part because it just had so much respect and name recognition. 
people were also making improvements and adjustments to Mercator's 1569 world map. Thomas Harriet, who was working for Sir Walter Raleigh, created tables of meridional parts along with Edward Wright. These allowed other mapmakers to lay out the longitude and latitude grid that Mercator had used. We also have an entire episode on Thomas Harriet in the archives. Wright often gets sole credit for these tables because they were published under his name as part of his 1599 Certain Errors in Navigation Arising Either of the Ordinary Erroneous Making or Using of the Sea Chart, Compass, Cross, Staff, and Tables of Declination of the Sun and Fixed Stars Detected and Corrected. Also in 1599, British geographer Richard Hacklett incorporated a map that Wright had drawn based on Mercator's projection in his Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics, and Discoveries of the English Nation. This map corrected some inaccuracies in Mercator's work, and it was really after this point that the Mercator projection started to get a lot more practical use for nautical navigation. The Mercator projection was also part of Robert Dudley's 1647 Sea Atlas and Edmund Halley's meteorological maps. In 1769, Benjamin Franklin and whaling captain Timothy Folger made a chart of the Gulf Stream based on a Mercator projection. By the 19th century, Mercator-based maps were well-established for navigational purposes. And into the 20th century, different variations on the Mercator projection were also used for things like calculating missile trajectories. Although the Mercator projection is still used for navigation in some contexts, and like we said at the top of the show, pretty much all online maps are using it, in some cases it has been supplanted by things like GPS. But the thing that most people are probably the most familiar with, at least if you're older than 35 or so, is maps used in school, especially these pull-down maps that could be mounted on a wall. Mercator wall maps for schools became increasingly popular as the maps were becoming more widely accepted for sea navigation. So more of them were made by the 18th century, and then they became seemingly entrenched by the 19th century. Some of this was probably just because people thought a map that was being so widely used for navigation must be the most accurate map. But, of course, companies were also making more of these maps in response to that demand, which meant if you needed to go buy a map for your school, that was probably going to be the one most readily available to buy. This is just not a great map for learning what the world looks like, though. It wildly distorts the relative size of various landmasses, with that distortion getting worse the farther away you get from the equator. So, just like we said at the top of the show, it makes Greenland look as big as Africa. Africa is really more than 14 times larger than Greenland. So that's a mess. Uh, (laughs) The continent of Africa is larger than the United States, India, and China combined, but you would not know that by looking at a Mercator projection. Antarctica also looks truly enormous. The website thetruesize.com has a drag-and-drop tool that people can use to compare how big different countries and regions really are. Added to that, in the Mercator projection, north is up and Europe is roughly in the center of the map. Mercator was definitely not the first person to do this. Ptolemy also made maps in which north was up The Waldseemuller map that we discussed earlier also had North at the top and Europe roughly in the center. 
you look at really old maps that are not with the north is up standard, some of them have south up or east up. Like, that's, other directions can be up. Uh, there is an argument that the Mercator projection's ubiquity, combined with these size differences and north being up and Europe being roughly in the middle, that makes this a particularly Eurocentric map. Also, maybe not intentionally and maybe not consciously, but in Western culture, bigger is often seen as better, and things on top are often seen as being more important than things on the bottom. There's not a lot of data to back up the idea that in the real world, Mercator projections make people think the Northern Hemisphere, and particularly Europe, is the biggest, most important thing on the planet, but still, for a lot of us, that is the mental image we have, with Europe at the heart of it and the global north towering over the global south. There have also been times when the Mercator projection has been put to an intentionally, explicitly political use. I mean, you could argue that all maps are political, but this, in this thing I'm about to talk about, definitely done for a political reason. So, for example, during the Cold War, the Mercator projection could make a great backdrop for people who were hyping up the dangers of communism because if you had a map in which the Soviet Union and China were both bright red, that definitely made it look like there was this huge hostile presence that was about to overshadow the rest of the world. By the latter half of the 20th century, other projections had mostly replaced the Mercator projection in atlases. The last atlas using the Mercator projection for a map of the world was printed in 1966. A number of other projections were used in its place. One was the Winkle triple projection made by Oswald Winkle in 1921. This is called the triple projection, and that's spelled T-R-I-P-E-L, because it tried to minimize three of the types of distortion that are part of map projections, those three being area, direction, and distance. National Geographic has used the Winkle triple projection a lot. In 1963, the Robinson projection made by Arthur H. Robinson was focused more on retaining the look of all the land masses in relation to one another rather than trying to accurately preserve any specific measurement like distance or area. So most map projections involve making choices of which measurements to preserve and which aspects to distort to make up for preserving those other elements. But the Robinson projection was more generally trying to make a map that looked right. In the 1970s, historian Arno Peters started promoting a projection that he called the Peters Projection, which is known as the Gall-Peters Projection because it is identical to an 1855 projection by James Gall. This is an equal area projection. It preserves the area of the land masses while distorting things like shape and distance to compensate. Peters proposed this as an alternative to Mercator, one that he argued was superior because it preserved the relative area of all of the different countries rather than exaggerating the size of some countries as compared to others. There's the thing, though. By the time Peters made this argument, Mercator projections were no longer being printed in atlases, and there were already multiple other projections to choose from that were less visually distorted than the Mercator projection is, and the Gall-Peters projection that he was promoting as an alternative, that's extremely distorted also. So while the Mercator projection makes things bigger the farther they are from the equator, the Gall-Peters projection sort of just elongates everything. It looks weirdly stretched out. So it makes sense 
to use the Gall-Peters projection as a counterpoint to the Mercator projection to, like, illustrate how different projections distort things differently and how those distortions can have social and political implications. But if your goal is to teach kids what the planet looks like uh, and how various nations and regions are situated in relation to one another, it is still not a great map. (laughs) But... Peters got a lot of attention when he made this argument in the 70s. And today, a number of social organizations whose work is focused on the global South use it. And since 2017, Boston Public Schools, for some reason. The idea of using Gall Peters instead of Mercator was also even on an episode of the political drama The West Wing. Yeah, I um, I have not watched that show, and uh, no one needs to tell me that I need to go watch it, really. It's, it's okay. Uh, but I've watched that scene. And in addition to sort of being like, we should use the Gall-Peters projection, they also turn it so that South is up. Uh, and one of the characters is like, that's freaking me out. Um, it, do- it does. It looks very strange to have a South pointing up Gall-Peters projection. Um, there are also still new map projections being developed, including one that was announced just in 2021, which I think is pretty cool. This was developed by J. Richard Gott, Robert Vanderby, and David Goldberg, and it is a double-sided disc, or you could just put the two discs side by side, I guess. Uh, the northern hemisphere is on one, the southern hemisphere is on the other. Goldberg and Gott had previously developed a system to evaluate how much different map projections distorted the globe. And they rated six factors, which were local shapes, areas, distances, flexion or bending, skewness or lopsidedness, and boundary cuts or continuity gaps. In this rating system that they made, lower scores are better So the Winkle Triple that we talked about that tried to specifically minimize three types of distortion, that scored a 4.563. The Mercator projection is almost double that at 8.296. If they said what the Gall-Peters was, I didn't find it. But this new map is 0.881. So way less distortion. It's a little interesting to look at it because it does have like one hemisphere on one disc and one on the other disc, which if you're expecting to see the whole map in one place is a little unusual, but it's a cool thing to look at, in my opinion. Do you also have a little bit of listener mail to cap off this this map fun? I sure do. I have this listener mail. It is from Danny. Danny wrote, First off, I had an amazing time in Italy with y'all. Thank you so much for being such gracious hosts. I'm clearly behind on my listening, but I finally got to the rabies episode, and it brought back memories. My very first patient ever in the ER was a rabies exposure who was out running and possibly bitten by bats. As you noted in the podcast, rabies immune globulin dosing isn't huge needles being jabbed into your abdomen, but it's still a decent amount of shots. It's a weight-based amount, but it's still a fair amount of injections, and the immune globulin can't be in the same muscle as the injection. It took me and a pharmacist forever to map out injection sites for this poor patient. Since then, I've yet to give the immune globulin again, but I gave tons of rabies shots to this day. I'm so grateful that it and many other kinds of vaccines exist. Thank you for all you do to bring order to the history cows and then in parentheses chaos. I'm going to explain that inside joke in a minute. Uh, So that was from Danny. (laughs) Uh, So yes, Danny, thank you so much for this note. 
Thank you for coming to Italy with us. We did finally take our trip to Italy. <laughs> um, Danny, the woman who gets things done. That's what I call her now. Yes. Uh, I, um, we we did take our trip to Italy. Uh, Holly and I both had some apprehensions about taking the trip while the pandemic's still going on, but we did it. We made it. We all tried to be as safe as possible. Uh, and all of the hiccups that we had were unrelated to COVID. <laughs> Almost everyone had their flights canceled, though. Um, Not me. Because of a strike. And uh, yeah. Danny was on our flight out of Florence, so she didn't have her first one canceled, but she had some problems down the road. It was a little bit of a wild time. <laughs> yeah. I felt guilty because I think we were the only ones that made it home smoothly, Brian and I. Yeah, there was a there was a transit strike in Italy on the day that most people were leaving, and a lot of people's uh, flights were messed up as a result. I was uh, staying a few days later to see Venice before we went home, so I uh, did not have that effect either. But I did want I wanted to read this number one because uh, great first person experience about rabies immune globulin. I also just wanted to say thank you to everybody who came to Italy with us. Because so many people were so patient over so many years before we were able to take that trip. Like, we had two-plus years of postponements on the trip before we were able to take it. Um, And everyone was so gracious and so lovely, and we had a really good time. And one of the most magical things I have ever experienced happened, which is the reference at the end of this about the history cows. So... Uh, If you go to the Vatican City Museums and to see the Sistine Chapel, you're not supposed to talk in the Sistine Chapel. So the tour guide, a lot of the time, will tell you, like, what you're going to see in the Sistine Chapel before you get in there. And so as our Italian tour guide was explaining what we were going to see in the Sistine Chapel, she said, in the beginning, it was only cows. And God had to separate the cows into the light and the dark. And I had this moment where I was like, what is happening? (laughs) Did Terry Pratchett write this presentation? (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember cows from Sunday school. And then I realized that she was saying chaos. And it was just one of the most unexpected and beautiful and wonderful moments in like, language barrier that I have ever experienced. I hope no one ever corrects her or makes her feel bad about it because it delighted me so much. And for the whole rest of the trip, occasionally I would just look at my spouse and go, in the beginning, it was only cows. So, (laughs) uh, and then it turns out, even though you're not supposed to talk in the Sistine Chapel, boy, does everyone talk in the Sistine Chapel anyway. It was very loud. And then the next day after we were there, Jason Momoa went in there and took a selfie and got in trouble. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you're not supposed to take pictures. You're not supposed to speak. You're supposed to wear your mask at all times. Pretty sloppy jalopy in adherence to those rules. Although security is trying, but like it is literally a room full of people not abiding by the rules. So they can't really manage it all, I think. Uh, I think of all the places we went, overall, um, the Vatican City Museums were, like, the most mask compliance. And then my own experience, personally, was just progressively less mask wearing until we got to Venice, where it felt like no one had a mask on and everyone was coughing. And I was like, come on now, I got to take a COVID test to go home. So it'd be cool if everybody just... Yeah, yeah. uh, 
Uh, most of Italy, I mean, I will definitely say most of Italy is more is still being way more careful than most of our communities that I have visited in the U.S. in recent times, uh, which was nice and made me feel a lot better about being able to get home. But yes, there were definitely some. Yeah. Oof. And I would say our group, our group was a careful group. We had uh, the eating indoors was the rare exception for me. Most of my meals were outside yeah. and masks on inside and uh, did everything we could to make it a a safe trip for everybody which I think mostly worked out knock on wood. So thank you again to everybody who went to Italy with us and for bearing with us (laughs) for two plus years of postponement. I know not everybody was able to make the final date that that we were able to go, but um, I'm glad we were finally able to take the trip. We are hoping to have other trips in the future. We, as of this moment that I'm talking into this microphone, we have not actively started planning one, but we do hope to have other trips. We have kicked some ideas around, but nothing is nothing is congealing yet. Uh and again, with the hope that the that the pandemic slowly moves toward being under control. <laughs> it does feel continuing to be chaotic, obviously. Uh we had a whole other conversation of can we actually take this trip uh back in the earlier spring before ultimately deciding to take the trip. So thanks to everybody for your patience with that. Um, Sorry to the folks who did want to come with us and weren't able to come with us for whatever reason. Hopefully in the future, more trips. Uh, If you'd like to write to us for History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com, we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.